If you're looking to sell your private company stock, SharesPost has a solution for you. With more than $4 billion in company-approved transactions, SharesPost is the leading marketplace for private company shares. To learn more, visit us at sharespost.com slash equity. And welcome back to Equity, the TechCrunch venture capital focused podcast. Uh, my co-host isn't with me today, but I have a special guest, Revolution Ventures partner, Clara Sieg, in the studio with us. Um, welcome to the studio, Clara. I'm sorry that it is a mess, but um, I hope you can get past that. Uh, we're really excited to have you today. Yeah, excited to be here. And the studio actually looks uh, great. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So today we're going to discuss investing outside of traditional VC hubs. Uh, Revolution, if you guys aren't familiar, is a venture capital firm founded by the AOL founder, Steve Case. Sounds like it was about 15 years ago that you guys sort of got going. Um, why don't you tell us just what Revolution focuses on? Yeah, sure. So we started in 2005 when Steve left AOL, really began as his family office investing off of his balance sheet. Um, over the next five years, we invested about half a billion across a bunch of early stage investments that turned into later stage stuff. Um, and then around 2010, we decided to institutionalize, largely because we got to a point from a family office perspective where we could do new early stage investments at the exclusion of following on in existing portfolio companies or do follow-ons at the exclusion of new stuff. So um, raised a later stage growth fund. That's when I started working with the guys. Um, and then a venture fund, and we now have a Rise of the Rest seed stage fund as well. So it's about a billion and a half under management um, across the platform, um, really supporting companies from day one up through growth stage. And what sort of companies are you looking for? Yeah, so part of our thesis is focusing on investing outside of sort of the hotbeds of venture capital. We certainly do invest everywhere opportunistically, but the core thesis is investing in second and third tier markets where you still have this pretty significant capital gap. When you zoom out, 85% of Fortune 500 companies are based outside of the Bay Area, New York, and Boston, but about two-thirds of venture capital goes into those three areas. So we see that as a huge gap, um, felt particularly at the Series A, Series B level where Revolution Ventures focuses, largely because it's hard at an early stage to cover the whole country from a sourcing perspective. And then typical venture capital firms have a very high cadence of investing and not as concentrated of an approach as we do. So it's historically been hard to manage a portfolio across the U.S. So I want to talk more about what it means to be a second or third tier market, but I'm curious. So you've been at Revolution for, you said, nearly a decade. Has Revolution from the get-go had this focus and emphasis on investing in these underrepresented geographies, so to speak? Yeah. So it, it happened at the very early days, a little bit by chance, a lot of the um, big outcomes that we had um, when we were originally institutionalizing and putting our track record together, we realized were from outside of the Bay Area. So Zipcar was an original investment in a company in Portland. We moved to D.C. Revolution Money, which is based in Tampa, Florida, Extend Health in Salt Lake City. And as we started to realize that and be a little bit more conscious of it, we started thinking about why fundamentally in these second and third tier markets, an idea on the back of a napkin doesn't get funded. So you really have to bootstrap to a certain degree and prove out really unit economics before you can unlock capital. So typically the companies that we're investing in at the Series A, Series B level are a little bit farther along than their brethren would be in 
the Bay Area or in New York. Valuation expectations are just lower, so you own more of a company for a smaller check-in. Um, inherently, if it's an exit, that is a better outcome for you. And it's just cheaper to scale companies in those markets. Employee retention is better. Cost of living is lower. And so the capital required to scale these companies and that's coming in after you and diluting you is less. So, you know, when Steve Case founded Revolution, was he coming at it from perspective of like, this is obviously good business, which it is to invest in these companies? Or was it coming from a perspective of like, it's not fair that companies in these areas just don't have access to capital like we do here in the Bay Area? Um, neither, really. Um, I think our investing approach in the early days and, and what we still focus on today is what is now commonly referred to as disruption, right? So historically, you know, Zipcar was basically disrupting the rental car market, and it was not really thought of as a great venture-backable opportunity in the early days. That's obviously changed. Now transportation is a huge piece of what venture capitalists focus on. But from day one, we focused on sort of sleepy incumbent markets where technology can be an enabler of a new business model that makes it better, faster, cheaper for the consumer or the business that's that it's serving um, and where you can kind of change the margins in the business to create a market leader that incumbents then either have to own or that can be a large standalone company. And inherently, when you think about the dynamics of investing in these old sleepy incumbent industries, a lot of core talent is focused regionally. And so the idea that tech for tech's sake is everywhere is probably not necessarily true. The, the hub is certainly San Francisco and Silicon Valley, um, but that's not what we're focused on. So let's, um, let's talk more about you specifically. Uh, how did you get interested in investing? And why don't you tell us like, what you were doing before you ended up at Revolution nearly a decade ago? So I grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, which I highlight because it's a market that's really good for us. Um, there are a lot of dynamics about the city that have changed tremendously since I grew up there, even because of the university system and technology advancement. I came out to the Bay Area to go to Stanford, got a degree in economics, largely because my dad was a math professor and he made me do math all the time. So that was an easy part, but I thought it was complete. I mean, growing up, it was all very theoretical and econ was the first time that it sort of overlapped. And I think investing is very similar in the sense that you're applying numbers and real intellectual rigor and quantitative analysis, but at the early stage, there's still a lot of applicability in your life and a real humanistic component to it, which I, I really enjoy. Right out of school, I did investment banking at UBS and the Leverage Finance and Financial Sponsors Group. That was at the height of the meltdown in 08. We quickly rebranded um, re to UBS restructuring. It wasn't a great time to yeah. be investment <laughs> banking. A handful of us left to start our own firm, which ended up being a little bit of a disaster. And I started working for one of my old bosses from UBS, largely because I needed a job and didn't want to move home to Pittsburgh. Although I do think it's a great market for investing. <laughs> in that capacity, still in an advisory role, started working for Steve. Okay. Um, and that was when we were first institutionalizing. So I was sort of the junior person doing all the analysis, putting the track record together and help us, helping us to raise our first fund. So you spent your entire career either in an investment banking or now in venture capital investing. Yeah. Since college. Okay. Yep. So how did you end up meeting Steve? Were you interested, given you know your background growing up in Pittsburgh, were you interested in kind of um, helping and supporting companies in these other markets or was it just sort of like a chance meeting? Um, not a chance meeting in that it was my job at the time, um, but certainly as an 
we crystallized the strategy and really um, put more and more efforts behind it and, and had capital to deploy, it was something that um, really spoke to me from um, my life perspective, but also from the perspective of um, being differentiated in what is a really crowded asset class. Things have changed a lot, even in the last couple of years, as far as attention being paid to just the fact that there is a funding gap across the U.S. So I'm guessing 10 years ago, you know, there wasn't a lot of knowledge or information out there to even understand how much uh, venture capital investment in these different cities differentiates. So can you talk a little bit about how it has changed thanks to, you know, the rise of various data platforms and just people actually talking about it? Um, I think one of the key parts is real focus at the local level with nonprofit groups, accelerator groups, angel networks that see what's happened in the valley and have interest in spurring that sort of economic growth. And it makes the risk of leaving your job and, and starting something lower when historically there was zero funding provided at that very early stage. And that's great. The challenge now is that regional funds can't support significant capital for a long period of time. So you do need the bigger checks sort of from coastal firms to come in and and offer support in that regard. I think it's it's gotten somewhat easier to identify, but at the end of the day, at the Series A, Series B level, a lot of it, while a, a component of it certainly is the market size, the opportunity, et cetera, so much of it is the person and the founder that when you're when you don't have strong ties to those regions and can't diligence the person and understand their network and capability for hiring, recruiting, et cetera, it, it's more challenging and, frankly, higher risk levels if you're not integrated with that community. Yeah, I mean, I think it's similar to how, you know, the last few years we've really come to realize that there's a major gap in funding for female founders. But the amount of capital actually going to female founders is not seeming to actually um, increase year over year much at all. Now that we're very aware that these founders in these other markets are in great need of capital and kind of often just ignored um, because so many VCs don't leave their home bases, which is most often San Francisco. I think it's certainly changing. At least we've seen that in the perspective of our portfolio companies attracting later stage rounds. I think a positive for a lot of these communities is that San Francisco is such a crowded market and valuations are so through the roof that people are realizing it's really challenging to make money here if you're not a tier one, tier one VC firm, because the only way you're winning a deal is by paying through the nose for it. And then the degrees of freedom that you have, both from the perspective of strategics or next round of financings, when you price things that high, are far lower. Right. It's extremely competitive for VCs to get deals. And it's also extremely competitive for companies to hire here. So there are a lot of reasons why people are moving away. So let's talk about this. Um, you know, you called it a tier one, tier two, or higher tier, lower tier market. So what is a tier one market? San Francisco. And New are York. there any other? So San Francisco, New York. I think um, LA is quickly becoming one, though there's still a little bit of a capital gap there. Boston, I would I would view in most areas as a tier one market. Okay, and what's a tier two market? Austin, Seattle, Denver, Boulder area, Chicago, um, Washington, D.C. Is a tier three market just pretty much anywhere else where there's... I don't think we get... I would say tier two, tier three sometimes blend. I think that there are core tenets of what we look for in markets that we view as emerging and really interesting. One, a university system that throws off talent every year. So we can use Pittsburgh, my hometown, as an example. Carnegie Mellon and University of Pittsburgh are great sources of talent. Historically, what used to happen in Pittsburgh is that that talent would be trained and then leave. Now with Google, Amazon, Facebook, 
Uber all having pretty big corporate locations there, the talent stays. And then the the kind of third part that we view as really important is a supportive angel and accelerator and seed stage environment so that, again, the risk of leaving your corporate job is not so big. And importantly, if your startup doesn't work out, you can go back to that corporate job. And having a pool of talent that's around that you can hire from is really important. So just to reiterate, um, you need to have a really great university system, probably a few nearby. You need to have corporations based there um, so that you have people, obviously, who are there in the first place um, who are able to leave and then maybe go back. What's the third ingredient that you need? The third ingredient is for the most part, having some sort of existing talent base with specific industry and expertise. So in Pittsburgh, there's a lot of robotics and AI. Right. So you might see, because of that, you founders um, spin off their own robotic startups. Yeah. So what are some of the, I guess, second tier up and coming hubs, uh, maybe aside from Pittsburgh, that you're really interested in that you see becoming a top tier Market. Yeah, we spend a lot of time. Rally Durham, we think, is really interesting. Um, similar dynamics as Pittsburgh. Milwaukee, Madison area is actually really That's interesting. That's not one I've heard anything yeah. about. Um, University of Madison is there. A, you don't realize how much consumer talent is actually there and like big corporate. You have Kohler, you have Epic, and it's a really great cost of living there and the the state offers really interesting tax incentives for investors and for companies so it's a more business friendly state to operate in so do you travel around to these cities a lot yeah and when you're doing that are you meeting with accelerators are you meeting with angels how do you go about sourcing deals part of the way we're able to kind of canvas the whole country and obviously we miss stuff all the time is we've spent the past decade really focused on building this leading brand, investing everywhere and spending time in market, boots on the ground. Steve has dedicated a ton of his personal time and capital to getting on a bus and shining the spotlight on these different markets and meeting with key stakeholders. And for us, that's a great source of deal flow and brand awareness in those markets. And it's really just nurturing that. When you put dollars to work in in emerging markets, the key stakeholders in those markets really remember you. And so when the two or three opportunities every year that are high quality come up, we're top of mind and they know that we take the opportunities seriously and we may not end up investing, but we'll certainly spend time with the companies and, and give them a real shot. So you actually, you mentioned a bus, but there literally, there really is a bus yes. that, um, now is this part of the Rise of the Rest Fund yeah. that does that bus? So why don't you tell us a little bit about the Rise of the Rest Fund and this, this bus that travels around? Yeah, so the bus came before the Rise of the Rest Fund. As we continue to kind of work on building our brand and supporting these um, different ecosystems, and, and really because it's um, a passion of Steve's, and he really believes that this is the way that America's economic engine will continue to be a world leader. He started going, doing five cities at a time, getting on a bus, spending a day in the city, meeting with key players in the city, doing a pitch competition, spending time with different emerging startups, and really shining a media spotlight on it so that it becomes more attractive for people who are frustrated living in San Francisco because they can't afford a house, let alone a two-bedroom apartment, <laughs> and see the opportunity elsewhere. Yeah. I mean, it certainly worked. Revolution is a brand that certainly anyone who pays attention to the intersection of cap, you know, finance and tech 
is aware of and and probably you know beyond that as well um have you been on this bus yourself i have yeah what's it like it's really fun and i i think it's it's a great way to to see a city and really understand how that tech ecosystem works and i would say it's it's really positive for the city too but to get back to the question around the rise of the rest seed fund so um, after doing that a number of times every city he went to he threw a pitch competition he put in 100k and then was following on and also met a lot of interesting other opportunities at the seed stage through that so decided to wrap a fund around it it's a little bit different from the revolution ventures and revolution growth fund which are both institutionally backed very concentrated approaches um, where on the venture side we're really only doing three to four deals a year and you know reserving one to two x per portfolio company so really putting a lot of dollars and a lot of capital, a lot of concentration of our time and energy and, and kind of network and company building. Whereas the Rise of the Rest Fund is more focused on sort of community building in the sense that they're putting checks to work very frequently, smaller dollars. They have over 100 portfolio companies. You're just trying to help these people get started. Yeah. Have a little bit of capital exactly. to sort of hit the ground running. Okay. So you've got you got the Rise of the Rest Seed Fund, which is investing, you know, in a lot of companies. You have got the Revolution Ventures Fund, which is like your flagship. And that's what you said, A, Series A, Series B? Series A, Series B, typically in the 3 to $10 million range. Historically, I've done a lot of consumer, but we also do stuff on the enterprise. And then you have the Growth Fund. So that's yep. making just a few deals per year. What size are those deals? 20 to $50 million initial check sizes. So the firm itself is pretty much stage agnostic, kind of goes across the board yeah. with different funds. And does it invest, um, you know, consumer enterprise does invest in anything. Do you guys really, is it just about the opportunity or is there a little bit of a focus? Yeah. So because of where we're investing, we have to be generalist by nature uh, just because of the need to be opportunistic when interesting things come out of uh, more niche uh, geographies. That said, I spend most of my time doing consumer stuff. A lot of brand and consumer. We've done a lot in marketplaces. I also do a lot in fintech and insurance. And then some of my partners spend more time on enterprise stuff. So you're operating out of the, or you're investing out of the, the Series A, Series B fund. Yeah. Okay. So what are you personally most excited about um, in tech right now? We have been spending, I mean, historically we've done a lot in fintech and insurance, and I think there's still a lot of runway there. Um, I think the 401k space is really murky. We've been spending a fair amount of time focused on that. In insurance, small business insurance is of interest to us. Um, we're investors in Policy Genius, which is a direct-to-consumer online marketplace, which we've seen tremendous growth through. And so we, we think replicating that on the business side is, is interesting. In terms of other opportunities. We've been spending a lot of time, as has everybody else, on um, fertility pre preservation and new parent services. I think our point of view is a little bit different there on the new parent services side because we've done a lot in food investing and we see opportunity there. Fertility preservation is a little bit obvious in that 2017 was the first year in recorded history that more women in their 30s gave birth than in their 20s. And we've seen a lot of interesting plays, but haven't seen one that we think, yeah, that we're ready to bet on. I think a lot of um, the money today goes to the clinics, um, which makes sense. And that is more of a private equity roll-up strategy, which we're obviously not suited to do out of a venture fund, but continuing to monitor stuff on that. So as you said, you're here, you're based in San Francisco. How big is the team here in SF? There are only three of us. Okay, so yeah. it's just a few of you guys. Um, but it sounds like you travel a lot. You're kind of making your way around to all these 
different parts of the U.S. We're trying to find Yeah, we're, we're headquartered in D.C. We've got about 70 folks back there. San Francisco was started really just because my partner, David Golden, and I both live out here. And the trade was sort of, we'll be on the plane all the time. And that's fine, but we'll also have a small San Francisco office. We've added another person to the team, a VP, Graham Ober, who's wonderful. And really the, the evolution of it is that everybody comes through here when they're fundraising, regardless of where they're based. So it's actually more efficient than being in D.C. for top of funnel a lot of the time. And then in terms of supporting our existing portfolio companies, being able to connect them and really serve as a validator for them to later stage more Valley-centric funds is helpful. And then as we think about different themes that we're investing in, investing against, it's helpful to be informed by what's going on here. So not only are you able to connect them with later stage funds, but you're also also able to meet with founders kind of when they're making their way through town. Yeah, exactly. So why do you, or why did you, or why do you want to be based here? My life is here. (laughs) It's pretty simple. Yeah, so you've been here since Stanford then. Yeah, I've been out here since 04, so it's been a while. Do you think uh, Revolution has plans to double down on their SF presence at all and kind of expand the team? Just, yeah, I mean, we, we cover it. We don't need to grow it demonstrably. I think DC is always going to be the real center of gravity for us, which is important because a lot of the industries that we invest in are heavily regulated. And while venture capitalists historically sort of stiff-armed regulators, we think it's a really critical part to investing and can be a real moat for our businesses. So we spend a lot of time focused on policy and helping our companies navigate the regulatory landscape. So does Revolution look outside the U.S. at all? We have some Canadian investments. I think it's covering the entire U.S. is it's, it's a lot of work. A lot of work. <laughs> and so if something gets to us from Europe or Asia, like the number of people who had to say no to that opportunity for it to finally show up on our doorstep because we're not proactively sourcing there is kind of amazing. So I think low likelihood, but never say never. Do you pay attention at all to the rising hubs globally, though? I mean, if, I know you're looking at like Atlanta, Austin, these kind of up and coming yeah. areas, but do you do you notice trends outside the U.S.? Yeah, I mean, look, I think Europe is an incredibly interesting place to invest now, but I also think it's one where you need to have local expertise and we don't have it. Hey, everyone, don't forget this episode is brought to you by Shares Post. Okay, so transitioning, I kind of want to talk about just the struggles of founders that are in these other markets. So, you know, of course, what Revolution is doing is great because you guys are showing up where they are and you're letting the pitch do, you're investing the seed, which is incredibly helpful to these ecosystems. But a lot of investors that are based in SF want to invest in SF companies. As much as they won't admit it, I think that's a pretty, it's pretty true throughout the industry. So what do you think about that? I think that's true. And why is it true that they want to invest in local founders? For somebody who's on a plane all the time, that's not the most enjoyable thing in the world. And are there definite positives to being able to walk down the street and grab coffee with a founder once a week? Yeah, I don't think that happens in reality, but the idea of it certainly is great. And the ability to go to board meetings and connect them with other portfolio companies that are right in market, that's great. I think that's changing as we talked about. And when you think about sort of the, the struggles of investing outside of the valley. I think a, a key part of scaling companies, obviously, is hiring and not having enough local talent and not knowing where to source talent from and how to recruit it is a, ch- a struggle and a challenge. 
But again, I think as the cost of living in San Francisco and New York becomes prohibitively high, we've seen more and more talent want to move home or want to move X, Y, Z. And it's actually a great recruiting strategy for us where LinkedIn is a very powerful tool and you can go on and basically filter by people with connections to said city. We're in the process of doing that right now in one of our portfolio companies that's in Milwaukee and they're getting a great potential candidate who has built a company in Denver and is originally from Milwaukee and wants to come home to start a family. Yeah, I think we're at this interesting moment where, of course, we're seeing the rise in remote work, which only facilitates this kind of thing. Yeah. But because we're in this, I guess, moment of transition, I think there are still a lot of VCs who sort of go by the classic um, way of thinking, which is to invest locally, which is to invest in founders who are in San Francisco. San Francisco is where it all happens. But then there are a lot of investors who I've heard say things like, we encourage all of our companies to immediately open a second headquarters right. in an up-and-coming market, or we even encourage them to get the hell out of San Francisco because like, not only can a founder barely afford to live here if they're early stage, but I mean, think of their employees and think of and what they have to pay. And retaining talent mm-hmm. is really challenging here. It is, it is. It's, like, it's um, as competitive as, as it's ever been. Yeah, and I think as uh, more and more Valley-based VCs start seeing their companies opening second offices and spending more time there, um, you'll see this flywheel of more capital going outside of the Valley. And and we are super excited about that and welcome it because there are endless opportunities. And um, I think it is one where when there are big successes in these regional areas, they splinter off and create more companies and more successes. When you're, you know, chatting with other VCs, you know, who are also located here in SF, um, do you tell them, like, do you encourage them to to look at these up and coming markets and to sort of like expand beyond what they know in SF? Yeah, and a lot of them are co-investors of ours at the later stage after we've come in. Probably the benefit of having you guys here to yeah. kind of network around that, it. That's part of the thesis around mm-hmm. the San Francisco office, but it's not like we're some geniuses that. Right, right. Are the only ones doing this. Um, There's definitely more focus on it. And um, a lot of folks are trying and actively sourcing from outside of the valley. It's just sometimes the bar is higher. Whereas for us, it's kind of the opposite where the bar is higher for us to make a valley investment. Well, we're almost out of time, but um, I like to ask investors um, this one question. So I'll just end with this. Um, Are there any companies that you really wish that you would have invested in? that you totally missed the opportunity to do so? From a consumer perspective, I wish I had invested in the Series A of Goop because we looked at it ah. and passed on it. And I interesting read it obsessively, shop from it obsessively. Mm-hmm. Why'd you pass? I think there were questions around how universally adopted that sort of tone would be. Mm-hmm. And I think it's expanded pretty dramatically and and really healthfully and health wellness is such a big focus now and it's something that we've focused on since day one at revolution you know in the way way back time machine having invested in things like lime gaium and run keeper etc oh yeah that that's one that personally i see every day and i'm like (laughs) well it was great to have you on and thanks so much um yeah hopefully we can have you on again next year appreciate it all right bye All right, everybody, thank you for listening, and a big thank you to our producer, Christopher Gates, our executive producer, Henry Pickovet, and we will see you all right here next week. Hold up. 